That's right, said the beaver. Poor fellow. He got wind of the arrest before it actually happened and handed this over to me. He said that if anything happened to him, I must meet you here and take you on to... And here Beaver's voice sank into silence, and it gave one or two very mysterious nods. Then, signaling to the children to stand as close around as they possibly could so that their faces were actually tickled by its whiskers, it added in a low whisper, They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And now... A very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Hmm. Welcome to the Christ and Classics podcast. This is Colton Moore and Devin Wilkins, and this is the third episode of the second installment of our podcast where wherein we're going to focus on uh, the author author uh, literary critic theologian philosopher C.S. Lewis and primarily focus on his chronicles of Narnia we began with Michael Ward who uh, so wonderfully opened up this this season for us. Uh, last week's episode, Devin and I discussed, I think, what's turning out to be one of my favorite things I've ever read, the meditation in a tool shed. The more that I read it, the, the, the more it's uh, captivating me. And now, today, we kick off uh, the Chronicles with the first one, The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, despite what many publishers will, will say. How many ands are in there? Uh, <laughs> the lion and the witch. Oh, just two. Oh, there's one. Oh. <laughs> the lion, Boy. the witch, and oh, the wardrobe. Sorry. Did I say the lion and the witch and the wardrobe? It's all right. It's all good. Oh, wait, show uh, me that copy again. Hold up that copy. Nineteen fifty. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I think, this is kind of the official version. So, is that the original? Is that like a? That's not a first no, edition. 50th anniversary. Oh, okay. But it's got all the original. Um, my, I definitely recommend. It's got all the original. You know, illustrations yeah. in color. 
Oh, in color. Do you? And it's you, really thick, really pages. thick paper. Yeah, mm. I love it. But but you have an original set, right? Like in the original order. It's not like it's not like the the um, Im- imposters order of uh, where it starts with magician. But you've got. Um, I believe all my sets are imposter order. Um, no, you've got an older one though. It's in your living room, right? I've seen yeah, it, that old battered one. We do have an old one in the living room, and that might, but I think so. I don't read that one because it's not nearly as nice. <laughs> oh, but it's original. Well, Ooh, those are beautiful. So, That's nice. yeah, this is the uh, the fiftieth anniversary one, and I've reordered them. You know, oh from, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And just cut the top off so that, that way you can oh. you know, easily just pull them out as you okay. need. It came like that, but I actually like it. I'd, yeah, oh, nice. I was disappointed when I first got it, but then I like it now. Yeah, we'll drop we'll drop a link in the in in the description below with the with a link to the fiftieth uh, uh, edition. Um, the before we get started, while we're on this topic, the the paragraph from which I just read is the first in the line of the witch and wardrobe is the first time that the name of Aslan is mentioned in the book mm-hmm. and um if you if, if you read it he says um n- quote none of the children knew aslan was any more uh sorry none of the children knew who aslan <laughs> was any more than you the reader do there's just one little bit of evidence that's like okay this is our first introduction to aslan perhaps this is the first book and not only that <laughs> this is the first one he put on the put on the market yeah, there was not another one written at the time that this one was published. I don't believe. Right. If you want a more extensive uh, uh, argument for Treatment? why the line of the witch yeah. is the, is the is the first, you can go back to episode uh, one of season two, where Michael Doctor Michael Ward discusses that. So, <clears throat> should it be said that um, will we be referencing Ward much in our like Ward's thesis as we discuss these or? I, is somebody safe? <laughs> Who I don't necessarily uh, think we have to avoid him. I mean, uh, the fact that we interviewed Michael War- Doctor Ward over his book Planet Narnia, which is right there in the background, just uh, makes this podcast not safe for those who don't who've never read Narnia before. But yeah. originally, we were thinking we would go through all the chronicles and then interview um, Doctor Ward, but we got it the other way around and. It was awesome. Yeah, and I it think was wonderful. We're gonna enjoy it, but uh, reader beware. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> or listener I'm, beware. And like, quite frankly, I'm I'm more interested in the the questions we're trying to ask and answer, mm-hmm. um, as it could benefit a, a a teacher or a student of the line of the witch. And quite frankly, I don't think mm-hmm. a, a typical high school, middle school teacher is going to be. Um, expounding or elaborating on Dr. Ward's uh, uh, thesis as, as readily as, say, maybe a college course on Lewis might. Um, but when I taught high school, um, I let's see, I did teach some Lewis, but um, I referenced Ward, especially when I taught through uh, Dante's um, Commedia or the Divine mm. Comedy. Mm. Mm. Which I took 
Ward was a helpful kind of entry gate for me into, um, do I have it here? No, I don't. Must be on my shelf over there. Anyway, into um, discarded image. Because hmm. uh, I don't think I'd ever read through the discarded image before. And that is Lewis's treatment of um, kind of medieval, uh, what'd you say, medieval cosmology, medieval um, worldview. Mm -hmm. Anyway, more academic. Yeah. Well, back to the book. Devin, let me uh, let me give us a summary, uh, a brief summary, uh, and uh, I'll probably in this summary just briefly touch on as I as I go along some of the major themes that that mm -hmm. I'm seeing, and then chime in if you feel that I'm missing anything, and then kick us off with a uh, with a question, and then we'll run with it for twenty five mm -hmm. minutes. Just or see so. if your summary alters my question. Ah, maybe so. All right, so line of, line of the witch. In the wardrobe, you're you're uh, plunged right into uh, the middle of World War II, where London is being bombed, and you're immediately introduced to the Pevensey children: Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And mm -hmm. because of the war, because of the danger in in the city, they are sent out into the countryside to uh, to stay in a large house called a mansion with uh, Professor Kirk. What, wait, and what's the large house called? A mansion? I'm sorry. A manor? I'm playing. A mansion? No, I'm just playing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very confused. <laughs> and so they're, they're at this house and it's, it's a, it's a massive house with uh, lots of rooms, lots of, um, places for them to explore and they um they're playing and mm -hmm. eventually um uh they came across a room with nothing in it but a large wardrobe where you place your uh clothing particularly coats and and larger attire and um Lucy but in particular um found that she needed to explore it. She found it, and she uh, walked through it. And um, as the cinematic rendition, I think, does a really beautiful job of, she she's feeling the coats, and uh, all of a sudden, she's not... She, she's feeling the coats and walking back into the wardrobe, and instead of finding the back of the wardrobe, she begins to feel trees and crunchy yeah, snow. Inches, and it, yeah. The temperature gets cold, and they, she finds herself in this whole other world. Mm -hmm. And uh, she comes across a lamppost where she meets a uh, mythical fi mythical figure, a fawn, F-A-U-N, uh, called Mr. Tumnus. And Tumnus invites her into uh, his home where he offers her tea and cakes. And she he begins to play the flute for her, which puts her to sleep. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and ultimately... He ends up confessing to her that he's been sent to kidnap any son of Adam or daughter of Eve that uh, he uh, he finds, as ordered by the queen or the the white witch. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, long story short, he lets her go. She goes back into her own world where her siblings don't believe what she's seen or what mm -hmm. she's experienced. She's been gone for 
all all day. Uh, Lewis didn't say how how many hours, but we're, we're left to presume at least ten to twelve, half the day, really. And she comes back and finds out that in her world, she's only been gone but a few minutes. And uh, maybe I'm going too slow with with all these all these details. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, her siblings don't believe her. They think she's going crazy. Edmund, who we come to find is a pretty nasty, Lewis uses beastly little boy. He is. Uh, he's really nasty. I kind of forgot how awful he was. <laughs> really, yeah. Just just think of a, a, a nasty, just malicious, jealous, bitter boy. He ends up finding his way into the wardrobe. And who does he see? He doesn't see the fawn, but he comes into contact with the white witch and her chief dwarf. And uh, she offers him, well, she was, she was about to kill him until he told her that he's got other siblings. And so she ends up uh, telling him to go back into his own world and don't come back until he's, he's brought his other three uh, siblings. And, he, and he's, Pretty much seduced into into doing this by the Turkish delight, which is mm-hmm. uh, has, has a magical incantation in it that will uh, cause him to basically eat himself to death. He wants it uh, because he uh, have you had a Turkish life. delight before? Oh, it's delicious. <laughs> it's they're, they're not a, they're not what you would expect though. No, the first the first time you have one, you're like, wait, this is this is. I was thinking chocolate. Yeah, it's not chocolate. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's absolutely wonderful, wonderful. Um, I'm gonna speed up, Devin. I'm not gonna get too <laughs> too much into the weeds. We don't have a whole lot of time, and we're only taking one episode with this. But long story short, and, and help me out here, the Pevensey mm-hmm. children all get into Narnia, mm-hmm. and they they realize that they're in a particular moral conundrum when they get there because Tumnus, mm-hmm. who basically saved Lucy's life has been taken captive by the White Witch. Mm-hmm. And they get some help from this bird that leads them to... Um, robin. A robin, yeah. Leads them to the beaver's house. Mm-hmm. And the beavers tell them about Aslan. And uh, from the paragraph that I f- first began this with, and... The beavers are excited that Aslan is coming is is back in the, in in Narnia, mm-hmm. and um, they eat dinner at the beaver's house uh, in a, in, a, in their beaver dam. Edmund escapes to go find the White Witch's castle, which she told him where it was earlier, and he ends up betraying his siblings and telling the witch that the siblings are here and they're at the beaver's house and. The witch sends wolves to go attack the beavers and, and, and to kill them and to find the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Meanwhile, the beavers realize what Edmund has done, and they go to go they go find Aslan at the stone table. Can I say something? Tell me. Because this is not, I don't think, going to jive with my questions. I just wanted to add a <laughs> little, ah, man. Their, their impulse is to go after Edmund to retrieve him from the White Witch. Um, by by going to her castle, Jadis's whatever, and the beavers say, "No, you can't do that. Uh, if you try, to, if you do that, 
uh, it's forever. I mean, that is the wrong way to go. The only way, the only hope of getting your brother back is by going to Aslan himself. Aslan is the only answer. And Mm -hmm. I was, it's one of those nuggets in the story uh, that are actually uh, all over the place. But one of those nuggets where you're just, oh man, that's, that, that really communicates to me uh, personally, you know, about like all the, um, I mean, Lewis has this way of writing and it easily translates to your own life. Um, and in particular, Christian life. Oh man. The only way is to, you know, take it to the Lord as opposed to, uh, whatever manner I, I thought I was going to go. Yeah. And even whenever you, even whenever they go to Aslan, their problem is solved in the least likely, least expected way. So they get, they meet Aslan and, uh, you have, you have all sorts of things that happen like, um, along the way. Peter has his first battle, and you've got another little nugget where Aslan's like, clean your sword. Clean your mm-hmm. sword after you just killed the enemy. Like, you're a king. Mm-hmm. You're a king now. Act like a king. And Peter is beginning to step into these shoes that Aslan has given him, and uh, Lucy and Susan as well. Meanwhile, Edmund's with the witch, mm-hmm. and uh, the witch realizes what's happened that the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve are with Aslan now. And, uh, she reminds Aslan of the deep magic before the dawn of time. What's that deep magic, Devin? What is the deep magic? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the deep magic seems to be, well, this is another little. Remember, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I was just saying. This is another little <clears throat> nugget that helps mm-hmm. us kind of understand our own world a little bit better. Yeah. Do you have a passenger you have in mind? Oh, um, I don't think I've got it right in front of me. Um, but like that, <clears throat> this deep magic that if a traitor. Like uh, if a traitor is uh, found, oh yeah, in in Narnia, yeah. like uh, she says, oh yes, here we go. Uh, this is Jadis, the White Witch, to Aslan. Quote: You at least know the magic which the Emperor, Aslan's father, <laughs> Aslan's mm-hmm. father. You at least know the magic which the Emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery, I have a right to kill. And mm-hmm. then, uh, it was like justice and natural law and like those, um, yeah, the, those things that stem from the emperor beyond the seas character that his world is bound by and she twists for her own ends. Well, like, or tries to. Beaver responds, and he's pretty feisty. He says, oh, so that's how yeah. you came to imagine yourself a queen, because you were the emperor's hangman, I see. And then Aslan says, peace, Beaver. And then he says, with a very low growl, and so, continued the witch, that that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. 
Now, like, what's interesting is that the emperor over the sea put mm-hmm. into Narnia, she says, this, this, this law into the very beginning. It's like it's woven into creation. <clears throat> the fabric, every yeah. traitor belongs to her. She's not mm-hmm. a woman. Like she's not a son. She's not a son of Adam or a daughter of of Eve. She's someone special, someone um, magical and, and rightfully powerful, as as you see in like the the uh, the, the magician's nephew later on. Mm-hmm. And so, if there's a traitor in Narnia, bl- blood rightfully belongs to her. Like that's that's it seems to be woven into the fabric that she gets that blood, and that's a part of her purpose. Mm-hmm. in Narnia. Yeah. And the fact that Aslan says, okay, okay, you're, you're exactly right. And you're, uh, in fact, the, the blood that you'll get is, is better than Edmund, this little tr- traitor. It'll be mine. Mm-hmm. And he offers himself up and she forgets the deeper magic that, that mm-hmm. happens when when uh, a sacrifice is made, right? And that's beautiful because you said at the very beginning of this, like you, you take this to the Lord to Aslan, mm-hmm. and he fixes the problem in the least likely way by dying mm-hmm. for for his people. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for a question? Yeah, we didn't summarize the rest of it, but <laughs> do you like, want to say the rest? Oh, the witch's the witch's power ends. The her her rule and reign is weakening with Aslan's growing power and presence. Ultimately, mm. it's crushed by his death, and he begins to breathe on and and to deliver the stone creatures that she had turned into stone, and mm. he brings his army of reborn. Uh, Creatures, yeah. um, to Peter, Edmund, uh, Peter, Lucy, Susan, and Edmund, whom he is forgiven of his sin, of his of his errors, and his traitor, uh, of his betrayal. Yeah, and he kills the witch, wins the battle at the end, and yeah. uh, saves Narnia through his kings and queens by his death. The beautiful picture of the cross and the church. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is beautiful, and <clears throat> yeah, I think my own appreciation of of um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is just reaffirmed as I actually listened to it this go round. Um, it's so good. Um, you, I kind of, you know, found particular joy in some of the later chronicles because they were less familiar and this one I'd been exposed to the most. I think it was read to me in fourth grade hmm. by my teacher in public school. Um and it was yeah, that I, that was the first time I I hadn't heard of it at home. And um and so it's been familiar I, to I, me I for read a while. First, I read this first in seminary. <laughs> But did you see the movie before? Unfortunately. Yeah. So you were exposed to the storyline. And the first movie is the most faithful movie. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh, yeah. The other ones, 
I get pretty strong opinions about. Oh yeah, don't get us started. <laughs> don't. But anyway, All right, what, what do you got? Yeah, I was so. If you have the this edition, I was thinking page nineteen. So very, very much toward the beginning, chapter two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't remember if Doctor Ward said something along these lines, or if I've read someone else along the way who asked a similar question. But as I came upon it again, I was like, yeah. I think I want to. I think I want to go down that road with Colton, because I don't remember the road very well. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of possible, um, a lot of poss- or a lot of potential in in asking this. Let me just go to. Let's see. Uh, so page nineteen, about a third of the way down. Or even before that, I'll back up a little bit. But what have you done? Asked Lucy. So this is when Tumnus has betrayed her. My old father, now, said Mr. Tumnus. That's his picture over the mantelpiece. He would never have done a thing like this. A thing like what? Said Lucy. Like what I've done, said the fun. Taken service under the white witch. That's what I am. I'm in the pay of the White Witch. The White Witch? Who is she? Why, it is she that has got all Narnia under her thumb. It's she that makes it always winter. Always mm. winter and never Christmas. Think mm. of that. How awful, said Lucy. Uh, I wanted to camp out on that uh, phrase, always winter and never Christmas. Because uh, I was thinking about it in advance a little bit about how Ward said there are three levels to the Chronicles. And, um, and it seemed to me that this is kind of the presenting problem in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, always winter, never Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it seemed uh, right off the bat, an odd thing to say in Narnia, uh, considering that, as far as we know, there is no Christmas in Narnia. <laughs> Christmas is a an Earth holiday. And um, so mainly I wanted to explore the phrase, always winter, never Christmas. Why is that appropriate or effective for, um, well, for us as readers, but for the overall project in the land, the witch, and the wardrobe for Lewis. Winter seems to be associated with uh, a kind of dreariness. Maybe dreary is not the right word. Certainly a, a, a bitterness reflective of the cold snow death. ice death mm-hmm. per- perhaps mirrored a bit in the stone images that the witch turns creatures into yeah that's right and even even in our 
even in the season of winter in our world, it's it's associated with death. the The trees go through the 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 trees and the and the plants go through a kind of death. Grass turns brown, trees lose their leaves, only to be reborn in the spring. Um, so they go through this repeated cycle of death, right? Resurrect. But what? But what? Humans look look forward to at least here in the West who celebrate, who celebrate and did and did celebrate and have celebrated. Mm-hmm. It's Christmas. Is when, at least in the northern uh, hemisphere. <laughs> r- right, right, right. I, I'm definitely speaking, um, in in generalities and on behalf of, of um of of many who live in a similar culture and climate as we do. Yep. And, and as Lewis did. Yeah. 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 And so Christmas is kind of the, um, I mean, we see in Narnia that Christmas obviously is associated with with uh, Father Christmas, Saint Nick. Mm-hmm. But 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 for us Christians, there's a there's like a birth within the death of winter. If winter is mm-hmm. a death, there is the birth within death, which is mm-hmm. the the Christ of Christmas. And so. What's this mean for for Narnia and the and the Narnians? Can I add um, something? Like, yeah, like death, um, death in the Gospels, especially, is captured most clearly by, I think, the tomb. Mm-hmm. Right, Jesus is in a grave with the a massive stone rolled over it, and you know, for, for three days. And so, uh, but, you know, all of our hope is bound up in the Lord of life who's been slain, uh, being, you know, in in that tomb. And I love, I love how John 12, um, captures it and, and Dostoevsky highlights this, you know, but if, a if a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone or abideth alone. But, um, but if it die, then okay, I'm messing it up because I'm trying to say it in the way that Dostoevsky says it, at least in translation. But the seed must die in order to give. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I way cut you off. No, Do you even was... remember where you were. No, that's wonderful. Uh, no, and, and, and uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking of there's that there's the um, who's the poet that that Lewis drew from? No, 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 no. Was it a Lewis poem or a Shakespeare poem that was like uh, Winter yeah, Path and and, that was and Lewis, Death Forgiven? Lewis's poem on the planets. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and so like, there's obviously this this realm of like, this this idea of, <clears throat> as the winter passes, so forgiveness flows. Mm-hmm. Um, as as the passing death, uh, as death passes by, as winter ends, here comes the spring of rebirth and renewal, mm-hmm. uh, and forgiveness, and and you see that in Edmund. It's like it's like. Uh, Edmund is like a little microcosm of Narnia. He's a little frozen death ball 
of bitterness and mm-hmm. um, uh, freezing malice. Mm-hmm. And he dies to that. Aslan kills it through forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And he begins to change just as the winter begins to pass and the snow begins to melt. So his bitterness and uh, beastly character begins to melt. I've never yeah. thought of Edmund as a little microcosm of Narnia, but mm-hmm. I can see it. Um, mm-hmm. That's good. And it sets the stage for future books. Whenever we get to the voyage, which is my favorite, because we have something similar that happens with, with Edmund and, and Aslan. Sorry, with Eustace, Eustace and Aslan. Yeah, just when you thought they couldn't be any beastlier. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got to rec- we've got to begin the voyage as the voyage begins. We just have to. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, I think we I know, we're just spoiling. I, I I couldn't I couldn't help whenever we're going through the Iliad to keep talking about book twenty four of the 24. Iliad. I'll <laughs> Only to have to talk to about it by voyage. yourself. <laughs> I know, and I'll probably talk so about sorry. the voyage backwards and forwards throughout all this trip through Narnia. It's my favorite. Well, it's only book three, so you don't have to it's not too long. worry about spoilers after that. Um, here's a question, though. So if it's always winter under Queen Jadis's reign, I get that. It's death. It's, uh, yeah, there's no, no vitality, no life. There's a reign of fear. Um, there's no joy in in Narnia, unless it's maybe hidden, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are these prophecies that they're uh, holding on to and sharing about uh, two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve, you know, and stuff like that. But uh, as Aslan is on the move, as Aslan's mo- you know moving back into Narnia, you can tell, as you have already said, because the signs of spring start popping up. And, um, uh-huh. and, you know, Father Christmas <laughs> strolls through and, uh, various signs of joviality as it were. I was going to say, yep. Um, but I, here's, I, so <laughs> Christmas, it seems almost like there's an association between Christmas and springtime in this mm. case um which i actually take to be easter <laughs> you know it be like uh it's like always winter never easter to me would make a little bit more sense mhm aside from the jupiter image imagery yeah. maybe the Jup- the jupiter image within the character of father christmas yeah. Uh, and yeah, yeah. So the question is: is is the image of Father Christmas associated more readily with winter time or springtime? You're, I, I see your point because he does come out as the winter is passing, whereas yeah. we typically think of Father Christmas as a character that comes in the in the very middle of winter, or at least well, inaugurating it. Right, right. I, yeah. yeah. Like winter solstice is 
mid-December. Mm-hmm. Late and December. So I'm, ju- I'm just trying to think. Th- I, I, I've never thought of this question, so I'm thinking on the on the cuff here. So I'm thinking of what happens with Father Christmas and the children. Well, he he prepares for them warm food and drink, and he mm-hmm. gives them uh, their iconic gifts: yep. swords, sword for Peter, bow and arrows, and a horn for Susan. The mm-hmm. magical healing vial for Lucy and a small mm-hmm. dagger. Nothing yeah. for Edmund because he's he's been he doesn't deserve anything. He gets a cold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, is there a is there an association with um, like what connection can we envision between the passing of winter, the forgiveness of sins, and the giving of gifts and feasting? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Um, particularly like gifts, <clears throat> gifts, feasting, and forgiveness. Because I mean, we're kind of throwing these images all together. Because the passing of mm-hmm. winter, the forgiveness of Edmund's sin, uh, the giving of the gifts, and the, and the jollity of Father Christmas. Hmm. Well, you, As you, you piece have, that together. Yeah, go ahead. You, you have the forgiveness of like, and I'm drawing in from the New Testament. You you have the forgiveness of sins at the cross mm-hmm. through through Christ's death, like Aslan or Aslan like Christ rather, but also the imparting of gifts, um, the the Spirit. I'm not I'm not saying that Lewis intends all these connections. I'm just trying to make yeah. It's not direct allegory. No, 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 no. But there's something uh, uh, the giving of gifts to to by Christ, the the feasting that comes. There's some connection there, but like like with the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> yeah, I wonder. This may not come out right, but I'm wondering if this could help. So. Always winter, never Christmas, but it's still wintry. Father Christmas comes, he gives gifts and prepares them for the 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 hope to come. Uh, Aslan has not, you know, quite uh, appeared yet, even though he's on the move. And, and that's kind of what Christmas is about, right? The hope of the Messiah is on the move and you've got you know rulers of this world some of them coming to worship him others attempting to kill him to the point of genocide right there's or infanticide what happened yeah so um maybe it does work maybe father christmas showing up you know early-ish and uh it he's kind of almost John the Baptist, like, you know, preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for the Hmm. coming Easter at the end. Um, Because by Jove, Jupiter also has the red spot. You know, he's, he's also um, pierced for our transgressions. You know. Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting.
uh, Ward makes it clear in his book that the jovial images within the the lion and the witch and the wardrobe, and even the um, the the mythological images that you see throughout the entire seven chronicles mm-hmm. are uh, just the vehicle, the means by which the Christ image is um, communicated, and uh, the means by which the Christ image is hidden. Uh, in a sense, um, or perhaps it's the other way around, that Christ is more obvious than the mythological clothing. Mm. Um, Seems like the mythological clothing allows the Christological realities to go down deeper. hmm. Oh, this goes deeper than what I thought. Devin, what would you say? Uh, what would you say to the person who is quite put off by um, somebody who says that, or per, quite put off by Lewis drawing from uh, pagan uh, idolatrous gods and using them as a vehicle to communicate the gospel through seven? children's stories are we indoctrinating our children to worship or uh false gods is lewis wrong i mean we you and i live in the bible belt where that sort of argument is uh, occurs often people Mm -hmm. hear things like oh zeus athena idolatry could Mm -hmm. be could be or they hear things like oh harry potter Witchcraft. Bad news. What do we? But if it's on TV, our kids can watch whatever it is. <laughs> wow. What would you say to that person? What would you say to that person? Like, well, should... yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly not anything and everything is necessarily good for your, you know, our, your children, our, our children, but. I think you and I made this same argument and largely on Lewis's coattails, I think for reading the Iliad, you know, why, why should Christians read classics? Uh-huh. And we talked about, you know, um, uh, well, first of all, uh, Colossians one, how God uh, in Christ created all things. Um, and all things kind of bear witness to him. And you might go, well, yeah, but what about other religions? I mean, that I understand creation, but religions? And then we went to Acts 17. Um, how uh, Paul is uh, basically saying, look, you worship an unknown God. Um, and I here declare to you who he is and, and, and goes for the gospel. And, and I, I basically <clears throat> kind of boils down to other worldviews still li- inhabit the same world. They might view the world not entirely correctly, um, but 
in a Romans one sense, you know, they can perceive God um, through the things that he's made, his invisible attributes and so on. And um, so the mythology, mythology is not perfect, but um, I'm trying to think how Lewis expresses it in some of his other writings. It's escaping me at the moment, uh, but, but basically participates on some level. And Lewis talks about there being like a dying God consistently through all these mythologies. Mm -hmm. And um, it's uh, the Christianity is the, Oh, this is, this is the one that you don't <laughs> I was gonna say the one you don't like the one that you'd like to flip on its head or something like that. Right. But all oh, the myth made um, fact. Yeah. So the myth made fact mm -hmm. uh, that myth participates in truth and um, the incarnation is from the perspective of the pagans, the, the myth is coming to its final culmination in reality, fact, yeah. as opposed to, yeah. And in the inverse, like we, our lives from God's perspective are more like a myth. So we could equally say, the fact was made myth. Like we are the story. We're in this story that God is writing, this myth, if you will. And he comes into the myth and becomes a man. But from the perspective of the Greeks and the Romans, who are longing, Paul says, for uh um for the thing, it's like the their myth has become fact. And so from both perspectives, I think we're, we're hitting at the same thing because God is the fact of all facts. Our facts are just his myths. Our, our facts are, are true in a, in a really real objective sense, but relative to, his, relative to who he is, they are more mythological um, than he is <laughs> from the Greek perspective. <laughs> So, yeah, but I mean, it can get a little, that can get a little like, whoa, yep, meta. Yep. But I think that at least Lewis's idea is you have this longing that's consistent through pagan mythology that strangely enough, there are strands in that longing that are pretty consistent. And you know, what is this? And and till we have faces really goes after this hard. Um, and, um, which I commend, I commend to all. It's very good. But the, um, that myth across time and space, um, in all of its diversities, but there's a, like a singular strand that's, yeah, Lewis would say, mm -hmm has become fact in the incarnation. And, uh, and that, that's why we can take hope oh. in, you know. Uh, well, yeah, sorry. Oh, Go I ahead. thought you were going to say, and that's why, my friends, we can read the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And, I mean, and I think Lewis includes a lot of that stuff because he was a medieval uh, scholar. And the medievals were basically approaching, you know, they were appropriating um, 
the myths of other mm -hmm. uh, worldviews, um, but seeing everything christened, you know, like everything is baptized um, in light of the truth. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. yeah. Well, Devin, we got to wrap this thing up. And it's I, a little I, long. I, well, that's okay. I, I just want to say that the, the, we, this is an example of like this conversation is an example mm -hmm. in my, in my mind is of what Jacob Klein spoke about in a short <laughs> little speech he gave back in the seventies, which is phenomenal, mm -hmm. which is, uh, an attempt at a Socratic dialogue, an attempt at a conversation led by questions is not, does does not necessarily have as its aim to answer all the questions with a definitive confidence so much as it does to expand our horizons i i've never thought of edmund as a little microcosm i've never thought of of, of narnia rather and i've never thought of the, the connection between um father christmas and the passing of 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 winter now do we uh, did we talk about the specific roles and uh of Father Christmas and nail that down? I don't think so. It's still a little foggy in my mind, but it's less foggy and I've opened up a new door that I've never <laughs> opened up before. And that's that's the whole point of education is to you got these doors and it's like, okay, oh, I've never opened that door. Well, if I want to go in that door, I'm going to, I know where to go now. Right. Uh, and sometimes you go all the way down it and you come back and sometimes you just leave it open and just kind of gaze through the, the threshold. And right now we've just kind of opened it up and we're gazing through it. Like, wow, that's a pretty cool room. Yeah. And what's I, in there if we, you know, I'm thinking that maybe that's all we'll really be able to do as long as we're discussing whole books yep. in yep. one podcast, but yeah. Um, well, yeah, and there are all kinds of other things we could have talked about, like um, how, who, you know, when Peter and Susan are wondering who they should trust, Lucy or Ed, uh, Edmund. Oh, yes. Um, when they're talking to the professor, oh, that conversation. It's so good. It's one of my favorite ones. Yep. Either and, she's, she's lying, <laughs> she's crazy, or you might just have to believe her. Yep. And then he concludes that conversation with mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, it's good. Well, we definitely uh, spend a lot more time with, with the line of the witch, but I think we're going to call her quits for tonight. Got to get to bed. Yes, sir. And uh, we'll pick, pick up next week with number two of the Chronicles. Prince Caspian. The OG number two. That's right. Prince Caspian. Yeah. The Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. It is. It oh. reminds me of our world. Hmm. Yeah. What's that All right, sound man. I hear? Is that music? Is that Micah? Take us away. <laughs>